The words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. I've lived long enough now to have what might kindly be described as loose ends in my life, or less kindly and more accurately, unreconciled relationships. Some go back to my family of origin, some are from my ordained life and include colleagues, former parishioners, and some are among my friends. It's not something I'm proud of. I can never claim to be objective, but I have some sense of my part in the drama <laughs> that resulted in awkward or painful partings. Try to make peace with it all. I seek reconciliation when possible. Respectfully keep my distance when that seems best. I confess my sins and I say the serenity prayer a lot. Today we honor St. Barnabas, who was, as Luke tells us, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and there's no doubt of his goodness in the biblical record. We first encounter him in Acts 4, where he's described, his original name is Joseph, he's described as a Levite from Cyrene, which means he was a diaspora Jew who spoke Greek thus spanning both sides of what would become the most contentious division in the early church. In Acts 4, though, that division hardly seems possible. This was the heady time when, according to Luke, the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one claimed private ownership, but held everything in common, and the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection with great power and great grace was upon them all. And Barnabas was the one who had sold a piece of property and brought it to the money to the apostles and lay it at their feet for the common good. For good reasons, the apostles named him the son of encouragement. <laughs> And the friendship between Barnabas and Paul, or Saul as he was called when we first meet him, is the stuff of legends. In Acts 9, we're told that it was Barnabas who first welcomed Saul when he came to Jerusalem after his revelation on the road to Damascus. And it was Barnabas who advocated on his behalf to the other apostles, who gave him a platform from which to make his case for his newfound faith in Jesus among the Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem. Now, while the timeline for all this according to Paul's own writing is a bit different, <laughs> with a three-year hiatus in Arabia after his encounter with Jesus and then returning to Damascus, before making his trip to Jerusalem to confer with Peter alone, Paul also mentions Barnabas almost immediately. It's clear that Barnabas, from all the New Testament accounts, was the trusted go-between for Paul and Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, who, remember, had every reason to be suspicious of this man. So the utopia of Acts 4 gives way to serious conflict that preoccupies the first apostles for most of their lives. Mm -hmm how to appropriately integrate non-Jews in 
face of the Jesus movement. Now we all know where Paul came down on this argument, a position of radical inclusion rooted in grace. We take it for granted now that was as controversial then as it is when it's spoken afresh in new contexts now. And some of the more ardent Jewish followers insisted on various levels of Torah observance, including circumcision, which was no small thing, and, and separate table fellowship. Separate table fellowship for Jews and non-Jews. Now for a while, there was a reasonable coexistence and a dividing up of territory. Peter and James working among the Jews, Paul and the others among the Gentiles. But then, as we heard today, after the persecution that scattered Hellenist Christians, the leaders in Jerusalem get word of an astonishing outpouring of faith among the non-Jews in Antioch. And scholars tell us that Antioch was one of those cities where the Jews didn't live in a separate enclave, but mingled freely among the rest of the population. So there wasn't that same division. It was truly a multicultural place. And, the, and the, the leaders in Jerusalem didn't know what to make of this, so who did they send to investigate? Barnabas. <laughs> and the religious scholar Karen Armstrong suggests that after assessing the situation in Antioch, Barnabas <coughs> excuse me, may have realized <coughs> that these Gentile converts needed a more thorough grounding in the Hebrew scriptures, and that Paul, a learned Pharisee who had been engaged in the Gentile mission for years was the obvious person to teach them. So he goes in search of Paul in Damascus and brings him to Antioch. Think of that. Twice now, Barnabas has opened doors for Paul, first to vouch for his authenticity among the original apostles, and then he brings him to a community that needed his particular gifts. And for over a year, they worked side by side in Antioch. And from there together, they set out on that first great missionary journey as told in the book of Acts. <coughs> and they have truly amazing adventures together. Paul, it seems, does most of the talking. <coughs> but it's clear they're a team, traveling far and wide, risking their lives for the gospel, and having in their mind this vision of bringing gifts to the leaders and the communities of Judea. Not charity, but a mutual offering of genuine reciprocity that could unify the church. The bond between Paul and Barnabas is so strong that people didn't speak or write about them without mentioning one and the other. Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas and Paul. It must have been a relationship that both cherished. <coughs> and upon which many depended. But as we know, it didn't end well. When they returned to Antioch, this brewing tension among Jews and non-Jews, which had um, previously um, not affected this congenial multicultural community, um, had been stirred up. Jewish followers of Jesus had come, apparently, during Paul and Barnabas' absence, teaching with authority a different version of the gospel that required Torah observance, 
and the separation of races and table fellowship was all very confusing. Mm -hmm. Paul was outraged. Eventually, he and Barnabas make their way to Jerusalem to appeal on the Gentiles' behalf, and indeed, the Council of Jerusalem, as Luke describes it, or Paul's private conversation with Peter and James, as <laughs> Paul describes it, <coughs> seem to resolve the conflict more or less, more or less in the Gentiles' favor. But as you know, it was, it was one of those conflicts that didn't go away. It continued to simmer. And it came to a head one more time back in Antioch. Apparently, the Apostle James was adamant in his separatist views. And some of his followers came to Antioch to press the point. And Peter had been there. And though he had initially eaten freely with the Gentile Christians, he withdrew from table fellowship with them once the James party came for fear of their disapproval. Remember this? Others followed suit until at last Paul was the only Jewish member of the Antioch community willing to remain at table with his Gentile brothers and sisters, even Barnabas. He would bitterly recall later, even Barnabas played false like the rest. Armstrong suggests it was perhaps the most painful rupture in Paul's life. And it may explain why he spoke so rarely in later years of his time in Antioch. And shortly after that, they part company, ostensibly over whether or not Mark was to join them on another journey, but clearly the bond between them had been broken. Barnabas is never mentioned again in the New Testament. Paul continues his travels even farther into the Gentile world with new companions, further and further alienating him from the Jewish community, Jewish Christian community. So I've um, had the opportunity, because of this sermon, to reflect long and hard on this initially wonderful, fruitful relationship and ultimately tragic parting between Barnabas and Paul. And I've allowed it to speak to my own history of relationships that begin in promise and in promise only to end in pain. And here's what I know. Barnabas was a good man, and so was Paul. And they were more to each other and more to others around them than the conflict that ultimately caused them to part ways. What was so very good between them and through them for others was real, despite the pain that came later. Brian Stevenson, the great criminal justice reformer of our time, he, he, uh, he likes to say that we are all more than the worst thing we've ever done, including those of us who have done really terrible things. We are all more than that. And I would like to believe that the same is true about our relationships, that they are more than the hardest seasons in them, and that we are all more to each other than how we are experienced by one another in those moments of conflict. I'm also struck, this is a great comfort to me, by the humanity 
of our spiritual forebears um, in all their complexity. Such a relief. I had a similar experience actually this winter reading David Blight's biography of Frederick Douglass, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And Douglass, you know, is the most important historical figure of the 19th century, born a slave, escaped at 20, went on to become this amazing writer, orator, leader of the abolitionist movement, lived to see emancipation, rejoiced in the promise of a newly re reconstructed American democracy, only to see all of that dashed by the resistance of former slaveholders and the rise of white supremacy. He was also an incredibly complicated man. And he lived a long time, which gave him time to make some truly colossal mistakes in his personal and his public life. He had a lot of friends and he had just as many rivals. The most bitter rivals were the closest to him in his own movement, whom he did not treat well. And yet, as I read, I never doubted the greatness of the man, nor do I doubt the greatness of Paul and Barnabas. James and Peter and all the rest because of their humanity and its consequences. And in that light, I hold up my imperfect light and yours for the mercy of God and dare to believe that grace can and does prevail, that God does forgive our failings, honors our intentions, which is not to excuse or minimize the consequence of sin or the pain of unreconciled relationship but rather simply to humble ourselves to receive grace in the places where we need it most and strive to offer it to those who need it as well. And finally, the ultimate statement of faith, which I proclaim, I'm sure you do too, at every funeral we preside at, that what is unreconciled in this life can and will be so in the heart of God. We try our best, but we can't fix everything on this side of heaven. So I leave you today with a word of humble encouragement. Dare to believe that God knows, loves, and accepts you in the complexity of your life and your relationships. And where sorrow has overshadowed joy or conflict suspended friendship, at least for now, allow yourself to rest and to trust what was good and be tender with everyone in the pain. Speak as well as you can about those who have hurt you and pray for them daily. As hard as it is, it really does help. I've lived long enough to see some relationships that I thought were broken forever to be restored, which gives me hope. But that hope is tempered by the things I cannot change. So confess your sins. Be open to reconciliation where possible. Say the prayer, serenity prayer often. And then, friends, go about your life and allow others to do the same in humble acknowledgement that God has always chosen to work through imperfect human beings. In the economy and grace of our God, brokenness and sin, even they, can be occasions for grace. And upon that, we can depend.